Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to discuss the issue of polygamy in the story of Jacob and in the rest of the scriptures, before moving into the section of Genesis 30 and 31 that shows how Jacob built his estate. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing polygamy and Jacob earning his estate in the book of Genesis. As we've dealt with the story of Jacob, we've come to the question of polygamy, and it was raised. So I looked at the material that I have on the subject and thought I could briefly summarize the arguments against it. There are basically three views you can take on the question of polygamy from a biblical standpoint. One is to say that there's nothing wrong with it. It's inadvisable, but it's okay. And depending on how you take Leviticus 18.18 and a couple of other passages, you could say that. You're not supposed to have more than one wife as an elder, but that's clear. But what about ordinary people? The text is Leviticus 18.18, you shall not take a wife in addition to her sister to be a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Now, if that's taken to mean you can't marry two sisters, then it doesn't exclude other kinds of polygamy. It's not rightly understood that way, but one could take that position, and some have, not many. The second view that you find historically on polygamy is that it's wrong, and if people are involved in a polygamous marriage, when they become Christians, they have to give up all their extra wives and just keep one of them. And a lot of missionaries have done that kind of thing, sometimes harshly and sometimes not, requiring that converts from polygamous cultures give up all their wives and just keep one of them. That can put women out on the street, or it can be done in such a way that the husband continues to care for them, but he can't have sex with them. That's probably the most common position. I don't think it's correct. I think what the Bible teaches is if you wind up with more than one wife, you need to satisfy all your wives. and You can't just set them aside. So a convert to Christianity who's got several wives doesn't give them up, doesn't stop sleeping with them, but he's not going to be an elder in the church. That's all. It's wrong to get into a polygamous marriage, but once you're in one, you've got to take care of all the people in it in all the ways that marriage involves. You can't just say, well... I'll keep providing for you, but you're going to be lonely as far as everything else is concerned. That's an involved discussion. I'm not going to go into it. What I do want to do is point out the arguments for the sin of polygamy, contracting a polygamous marriage. The most fundamental argument, the one that Jesus says way back in the beginning, it was designed for one wife and one husband. And we can go to Genesis 2.24 for that. For this cause, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. The word cleave means stick. The entire passage shows one woman made for the man and thus, by implication, excludes divorce, polygamy, and the like. Leviticus 18.18, to which I referred a moment ago, you shall not take a wife in addition to her sister. 
the expression there in Hebrew, her sister, is just an idiom that means another. It doesn't have to mean literal sister. And the discussions of this, John Murray and others who have written on it, point out that the other places where this expression is used, it doesn't mean literal sister, it just means someone else. Somebody next to it, somebody similar. Don't marry a woman in addition to another one just like her, regardless of whether she's a blood relative. And it says, while she's alive, and it says that if you do that, it uncovers her nakedness, and throughout this passage, uncovering the nakedness is a sin. So marrying a second woman is a sin, period. And that's the way it's understood. The only other passage in the Bible that has ever caused anybody any doubt is Second Samuel 12. We've got a number of examples of polygamous marriages in the Bible, and we have a number of great saints who did not have more than one wife. All the stories that we have with more than one wife show tension as a result. But in chapter 12, when Nathan comes to David and criticizes, well, pronounces judgment on him for his sin with Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, he says this in chapter 12, 7 and 8, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. What does that mean? I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I would have given you more. Does that mean... Did David have sex with these women and they became his wives in a physical sense? No, it doesn't say that. It says he gave the wives into the bosom, which can be a much more broadly understood situation. And here again, if we take this in the biblical context, there's really no reason to think that these women became David's wives in any sexual sense. The first thing we have to say about it is that one of Saul's wives was David's mother-in-law. Saul's wife, Ahinoam, was Michal's mother. Incest with her would have been a capital offense according to Leviticus 20.14. So she would have been one of the women, one of Saul's wives, that David would have taken to his bosom. But I think we can be pretty sure that they didn't have sex. If there's a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire. So there's no sex there. We only know of one other person that Saul was related to in a marriage way, and that's his concubine, Rizpah. But according to 2 Samuel 3, 6 to 11, after Saul's death, Abner took her. Of course, Abner died. But in all the wives of David, when they're listed, she's never mentioned. So it doesn't seem as if she became a wife of David either. We don't know of any other wives of Saul. May have been some. All this verse means is I gave you Saul's women to protect as the sign that you inherited his house. One thing also to notice here is the relationship between house and wife. In the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover his wife, his manservant, his maidservant, or as the other way is phrased, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, his manservant, his maidservant. The house and the wife go together. That was true in the Garden of Eden. The woman is the garden. The garden is the woman and so forth. They're supposed to be both protected by the husband. To inherit the house and wife is to inherit the estate. And that's what David does. He takes over Saul's house, including Mephibosheth and the other members of Saul's house that he now 
takes in and provides for. And that's all this means. Taking over care of the wives is to take over the former person's husbandly responsibilities. It does not have any implication. So this verse does not imply in the least that David took Saul's wives and made them his own in any sexual sense, nor does it imply that God would have given him more wives. Actually, when it says, I would have added you many more things like these, that's very general. He couldn't have added another king's house. He couldn't have added another master's house, so Saul was the only master that David had. So that couldn't have happened. The house of Israel and Judah, he might have added the house of Edom, Ammon, Moab, those other nations. But here again, since there's no sexual marriage involved here, there's no polygamy implied here, there's no approval of polygamy implied here, there's nothing here that would cause us to say, God says, I gave you extra wives, and I would have given you more wives. It doesn't say that. So, there is a more sophisticated way of dealing with this. If somebody can't see that argument, if we assume that Saul had other wives, and if the verse means God gave them to David as bed partners, there's still no justification for polygamy because verse 11 uses the same Hebrew words in predicting that David's wives will be taken by another. Verse 11, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. But then it says, He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. See, that adds something to it. That's the sin of Absalom, and it's clearly wrong. Thus, on this reading, God gave Saul's wives to David in the sense he established David as king. He didn't give them to him in the sense that David was supposed to sleep with him, and if he did, it was David's fault. But there's no reason to read the text that way. Inheriting the women of one's predecessor along with his house just means taking over responsibility for them. Taking over the women is a sign of inheritance, and God gave Saul's women, including the servants, servant girls, all the women in Saul's household, everything David inherited, gave them to David in that sense. And there's no implication of sexuality here. So, I don't think there's any passage in the Bible that hints or indicates that God approves of polygamy or that it's fine with him. It's something people did they weren't supposed to do. That was a very common sin. But I think we have to say that it's always wrong to get into it, which brings us back to Jacob. Should Jacob have gone ahead and married Rachel after he was married to Leah? And my answer to that was, he was already married to Rachel and Leah, and so he wound up with both. What about the maidservants? Well, they're called wives. Not here in this passage, but later on they are. And I think, once again, if you start a relationship with somebody and you have that responsibility, you're supposed to keep it up. But I have no idea what these things were like. Maybe David slept with these girls two or three times and got them pregnant and then never again. Just don't know. We don't have any immediate familiarity with the dynamics of polygamous marriages. Whether the women all hate each other and fight over the husband every night, I don't think that's the way it is in harem. I think the women all get along pretty well and think of the husband as the stupid old guy that they can take advantage of. It's very hard to know. And the dynamics probably vary from place to place. So... I have no experience with a Seraglio, and I haven't read up on it, and I don't think there's any real need to. I'm sure it varies from time to time. But maybe all these women were just fine with 
sharing a husband. It's a different culture and a different time. It's not what we think of. Don't know. Can't say. But this is what happened. And that's about all I can say on it. Should Jacob have slept with these women, these extra women? Well, his wives were begging him to. Don't know. I suspect probably not, but he did, and there you are. So I can't say any more about it. We're going to move on. Chapter 30, verse 25. We've had the children born, and now we move into the working for the estate passage. And maybe we can do this today. That's in chapter 30, verse 25. I've got it to 31, 3. It's difficult to know exactly where to end this. I think I'll change that to 31.1. That much is clear, and the passage moves on from there. But let me read it, chapter 30, verse 25 and following. And it came to pass, once Rachel had born Yosef, that Yaakov said to Levan, Set me free, that I may go back to my place, to my land, and give over my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and I will go. Indeed, you yourself know my service, that I have served you. And Levan said to him, Pray if I have found favor in your eyes. I have become wealthy, and Yahweh has blessed me on account of you. And he said, Specify the wages due you from me, and I will give you payment. And he, that is Jacob, said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how it has gone with your livestock in my charge. For you had but few before me, and they have since burst out into a multitude. Thus has Yahweh blessed you at my every step. But now when may I do something for my household? And he said, What shall I give you? And Yaakov said, You are not to give me anything. Only do this thing for me, and then I will return, and I will tend your flock, and I will keep watch. Let me go over your whole flock today, removing from there every speckled and dappled head, and every dark head among the lambs, and every dappled and speckled one among the goats, and they shall be my wages. And may my honesty plead for me on a future day when you come to check my wages before you. Whatever is not speckled or dappled among the goats or dark among the lambs, it shall be as though stolen from me. And Laban said, Good, let it be according to your words. The contract is made there. And on that day he removed the streaked and dappled he-goats and every speckled and dappled she-goat, every one that had any white on it, and every dark one among the lambs, and handed them over to his sons. And he put a three days journey between himself and Yaakov. And Yaakov was tending Levan's remaining flock. And Yaakov took himself rods from moist poplar, almond, and plane trees, and peeled white peelings in them, exposing the white that was on the rods. And he presented the rods that he had peeled in the gutters, in the water troughs where the flock would come to drink, in front of the flock. And they would be in heat as they came to drink. And thus the flock came to be in heat by the rods, and the flock bore streaked, speckled, and dappled. But the sheep Yaakov set apart, and faced among the flock toward each streaked one and every dark one among Levan's flock. Thus he made special herds for himself, and he did not make them for Levan's flock. And so it came to pass, whenever the robust flock animals were in heat, Yaakov would put the rods inside of the flock animals in the gutters to make them be in heat next to the rods. But when the flock animals were feeble, he would not put them there. And so it came to pass that the feeble ones became Levans, and the robust ones Yaakov's. And the man burst forth with wealth exceedingly, exceedingly, 
He came to have flock animals and maids and servants and camels and donkeys. And he heard the words of Levine's son, saying, Yaakov has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he had made all of this glory. Literally is what it says. Now, the exegetes that I consulted inform us that the way the Hebrew is written here, that first verse is not a complete sentence and follows on the one before it, so that's why I'm including it in the passage. There's kind of a shadowy chiasm here in this passage, which makes it nice and linked up. At the beginning, Jacob decides to leave and says he's going to leave, and at the end, we didn't read quite this far, but the very next thing we find in verses 2 following is that Jacob sees that Laban is turned against him and God appears to him and says, it's time to leave. So we have a decision to leave and a decision to leave and everything is bracketed in there. We have the statement next that Laban has become wealthy and at the end of this passage, Jacob has become wealthy. Laban's sons say, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and he has gotten glory. The next thing that we read in here in terms of just signs of the structure is that Laban's livestock has burst forth into a multitude and that's matched in the sea passage at the end where Jacob's livestock has burst forth and he's now acquired an estate. New arrangement is set up. Laban abuses the arrangement and the new arrangement starts to work. So that seems to be the way the passage is set up. Perhaps that's just naturally the way it flows, but there are certain words that occur in positions that indicate some stylistic arrangement. Well, no need to go further with that. Let's just try to read it through. 25 and 26. After Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, set me free. Now this is, again, what we used to show that Joseph was born in the seventh year of the marriage. We've got six more years to go here and more kids to be born. It's at that point that he's finished working for Rachel. Maybe interesting that precisely at the point that his second seven years of earning for Rachel are up is when this child is born. It nicely matches the event, but what that might mean, I'm not sure. But at any rate, the language here is Exodus language. I pointed out to you before that Laban reduces Jacob into a kind of slavery that becomes a type of the Exodus later on. And we'll see many aspects of that as we go through. And here's part of it. When he says, set me free, that word free or let free doesn't occur much in Genesis, but it's all over Exodus when Moses is talking to Pharaoh. It's the word used. And so we're pointing forward. And then the word slave occurs a bunch of times in verse 26. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've slaved you, and I will go and did you yourself know my slavery with which I slaved you. Now, in English, we have the word servant and slave. A servant is not a slave. Servant can leave and all that. In Hebrew, you've just got one word, and it's used for everything from a hired man all the way down to a chattel slave who never gets free. And above him is a debt slave who is set free in the seventh year. And above them is somebody that's hired or a slave wife or a concubine. This word evid is used for anybody in that inferior relationship of dependency, whether it's just hired for a wage or all the way down. Well, Jacob is obviously not in the same position as the Hebrews in Egypt who had to make bricks without straw. 
But he's in a quite similar position. And we've looked at that, how he's forced in. There's really no place he can go. But particularly the way the language is written again is to show us Laban is going through something similar and that when he leaves it's going to be an exodus. And the kinds of things that happened to the Hebrews in Egypt happened to Laban here while the Hebrews in Egypt, they multiplied. Well, Jacob multiplied. When they leave Egypt, they leave with their flocks and their herds and all this stuff. Well, that's what Jacob is going to do. It's all the same stuff. So what the forefather does, the people do, and that's a pattern. Jacob addresses Laban in strictly contractual terms. This conversation probably was longer than we have recorded, but the way it's recorded is it would be wrong to say that we're supposed to say Jacob came to Laban and smarked at him. Okay, let me go now. I've done everything. That's not implied, but it's very straightforward. we got a contract. Hey, I fulfill the terms of the contract. Let me go. Time to let me go. You know that I fulfill the terms. Laban, on the other hand, comes back with this very flowery and obsequious reply. And why does he do that? Well, he tells you why. <laughs> he says, look, I didn't have all that much when you came, and now there's a lot, 14 years, Gee, I'm wealthy. And it's because of this Yahweh, your God. Yahweh is one of the gods that's around. Laban knows about Yahweh. He's got all these other gods too, but Yahweh is one of them, surely. He's got a little statue of Yahweh right next to the statues of all his other gods. So he's happy to say, since you've got a real thing for this Yahweh God, Jacob, it seems like he's blessed me on account of you, and maybe you'd stay around. But he's very obsequious about it, and I think we have to keep thinking of Laban along the lines of the serpent in Genesis 3. There are hints of garden talk in this passage anyway. And what Laban does each time is tell the truth in such a way as to harm the person that he's talking to. He never says everything quite true. We'll see this again in this contract. With the girls, you'll remember how sneaky Laban was about that. Back in chapter 29, Jacob says, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, my giving her to you is better than my giving her to another man, so stay with me. Well, Laban didn't say, I'll give her to you first. So when he comes around later on, sneaks Leah in, he can always say, well, you know, I don't remember exactly saying that I would give you Rachel first. I think I said it's better for you to have her than somebody else. I think that's all I said. You may have understood me to be saying that Rachel would be your wife, but I don't remember exactly saying that. Now he's going to do the same thing here. Very sneaky, deceptive in a destructive way, as opposed to deceptions that are constructive. We've discussed that enough, that contrast. Well, Jacob is still in a position here of wanting more than he has. He's worked 14 years. He's got two wives and, what did we say? Four, five, six, seven, seven children at this point. They didn't have anything else because he's been all this time working for his wife. So if he goes back now, he goes back with nothing. And he's still beholden to Laban. Laban could give him parting gifts, but Laban doesn't seem to be offering any parting gifts here. Well, later on, Laban says, 
oh, you ran away. Here I would have thrown a big festival and would have had a big feast and sent you away with all kinds of stuff. And Jacob says, yeah, sure. Now Laban doesn't offer to do this now, but he says, stay with me and you can make some money and that way when you leave you'll have more to go with you. So that looks good. And Jacob, in kind of a bargaining way, replies to him and says, yeah, you're right. I'm good for you. Verses 29 to 30. You yourself know, in other words, you are well aware of the fact that when I slaved for you, how it has gone with your livestock. You didn't have very many before me, and now you've burst out into a multitude. This exploding into a multitude thing is the language that God himself used for Jacob in 28.14 at the ladder to heaven. God says, your seed will be like dust of the earth, and you will burst forth to the seed of the east, to the north, and to the south. You will burst forth with your children. Now he says, Laban, your flocks have burst forth. But at the end of this passage, Jacob burst forth, it says, with many animals, and then he has an estate. So that language is used through here as a sign of uh, getting a lot of stuff. And Jacob emphasizes this. Wherever I put my foot, you were blessed by Yahweh. But he says, can I do something for my own house, you know, build up my own house? And so Laban says, sure. Laban says, what shall I give you? Well, Jacob won't receive anything as a gift from him. You will not give me anything, but instead let's set up this arrangement. Now, why won't he take a gift? Yeah, I don't think he wants to be beholden. This is a theme in Genesis, and we need just quickly to remember it. In Genesis 14, verse 21 to 24, You'll remember that after the battle of the four kings and the five kings and Abraham rescues Lot and rescues the king of Sodom, he refuses to take any gift from the king of Sodom. And you'll remember in Genesis 23 when Abraham, that's actually Abraham there, negotiates with the Hittites for the cave at Machpelah to bury Sarah. They offer it to him as a gift, but he won't take it. He insists on paying for it. So why not? If somebody wants to give you something, why not take it? There's certainly not a rule here for us, but why wouldn't Abraham take these things? And especially since later on, when we were in Egypt, we're going to spoil the Egyptians. It says, let every woman go and ask for the things, and people give them to them. Our, the older version says borrow. And you remember years ago when we studied Exodus, I showed you that there's no borrowing here. It's asking. Asking is a gift. Well, we can do that because in Exodus 3.22, Yahweh told us to. He says, have the women go and ask for gifts from their friends. I think the answer to the question is that, in general, the promise of the covenant was, I will provide for you, and the patriarchs are careful to make sure that everything comes directly from God. Directly or indirectly, but never in such a way that somebody else can claim to have given it to him. So that Laban cannot say, well, I gave you stuff, I made you rich. That can't be said. And that's somewhat of a useful principle in life. If somebody gives you something, you are beholden to them. Or they may think you are. And it's always something you wrestle with. So Jacob says, don't give me anything. And that's kind of a stress here. That's the only reason I can see that it's included here that part of the conversation might be dropped out and we wouldn't miss anything except the idea of rejecting a gift. So, we reject a gift from somebody that's untrustworthy. And now he says, 
I'll take the speckled and spotted goats and the dark sheep. I always have to remember that goats are black and sheep are white. So with that in mind, the speckled sheep, speckled means small white spots, and dappled or spotted, depending on your translation, means somewhat larger white spots. you got a goat and it's got some white spots on it somewhere. If they're little, it's speckled. If they're bigger, it's spotted. Later on, we're going to see a reference to streaked or striped goats. What does that mean? Apparently, it means black goats with white shoes. <laughs> right around the bottom of their feet, some white on their legs. So the goat itself is black, but there's some white striping around the feet. That seems to be the configuration, and I'll explain to you why it's worth bearing that in mind in a moment. And then he says, as far as the lambs are concerned, as far as the sheep, any dark sheep, any sheep that aren't white, why would he take these? Well, we're familiar enough to know that these are not as prized, especially the sheep. The wool is not going to get as much money on the market. There's also not as many of them. We don't get as many of these. So he says, let me just start my flock off with this minority of inferior goats and sheep. Laban says, sure. And then Laban goes and he takes them all away. <laughs> so that Jacob starts with nothing but black goats and white sheep. Verses 34 to 36, Laban said, good, that'll be according to your words. But then on that very day, he removed the streaked and dappled he-goat and every speckled and dappled she-goat. Every one that had any white on it. So every goat that had any white on it anywhere he took out. And every dark one among the lambs or sheep. And he gave them over to his sons. Now we have reference to the sons here. And he put a three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob was tending what was remaining of Laban's, Laban's flock. Well, once again, Laban has acted technically within the bounds of the deal. He separates them before Jacob has a chance to go through and select out the ones. So Jacob can't really complain. He says, sure, go ahead and go through my flock. Well, what do you know? There aren't any of those kinds out there, Jacob. He keeps the letter but violates the spirit. Three days journey. Based on what Jacob says later on about how he was out in the cold and how uncomfortable all of this was, I think probably Jacob was three days farther away from the camp than Laban was. But Jacob implements the deal here. What does Jacob do? There are basically three things he does. Got him here is three methods of what Jacob does. Verses 37 to 39. Jacob took himself rods from moist poplar, almond, and plane trees, branches, and peeled white peelings in them, exposing the white that was on the rods. And he presented the rods that he had peeled in the gutters, in the water troughs where the flock would come to drink in front of the flock. Now they would be in heat as they came to drink, Thus the flock came to be in heat by the rods, and the flock bore streaked, speckled, and dappled. The first method is expose goats to white. These black goats put something white for them to look at while they mate. Not our idea of science, but you can understand it. Levon, let me remind you, means white. 
And there are some puns on Laban's flock. Laban's flock doesn't have any white in his goats, but Jacob gets some white in there. He exposes white. The word poplar is based on the word white, livne, same as levan. So there's some puns there in Hebrew that we wouldn't pick up. I didn't point them out. Why these trees? Why not just say he took moist rods from trees? Why listen? So you think, well, let's study it out. What about the poplar? What's it used for in the Bible? Well, it just occurs one more time in the Bible. What about the plane tree? Well, the same. And you call it plane or chestnut or whatever your translation has. It's not a tree that has any symbolic significance in the Bible. The almond does, of course. But in this context, it wouldn't seem to have any particular meaning. My guess is that this is just a slight allusion back to the garden. We've got animals here, we've got trees here, we've got an Adam here cultivating this place and God blessing him in it. And I suspect that's the allusion. I don't know why these are listed. There's always a reason why they are. There's always a reason why the details are in the text. But that's the most I can do with the details. Possibly we're supposed to, again, think of the scene. Here these trees, water, sheep, little garden setting here. Did Jacob think this would work? Well, the common sense says, well, if you're looking at something, maybe that will go in and impress itself on the baby that's conceived at that moment. Not good science, but it might have been good science back then. Some of the commentators said, well, maybe Jacob didn't believe in this, but he was doing it for Laban's benefit. Well, I don't think that Laban was around to see it. He's three days off. And if Laban had known this was going on, I would think Laban would complain about it. So my guess is Laban didn't know about it, and Jacob thought this would work. And God caused it to work in the sense that God did something that was the equivalent of what Jacob wanted. I suppose in a sense that's true of all scientific methodology. If God doesn't cause it to work, it doesn't. And if God didn't cause us to digest food, food would run right straight through us the same way Marble would if you ate a marble. God causes everything to happen, so he makes this work. And I don't think there's no superstition here. There's no offering to any gods here. This is just science. It's just not our science. It seems very strange to us. And we are told in the next chapter that God himself caused these things to happen and it didn't have anything to do with these trees. So more meaning to this is hard to understand. My question is always, why is it included here? Why not just say, Jacob mated these flocks and God caused it to work out? Why give us all these details about taking pieces of wood and exposing some of the white and leaving some of the dark and all this? I mean, even if he did it, I'm sure Jacob did lots of things in these 20 years that we're not told about. Why tell us this? It's not as if the Bible is giving us a complete blow-by-blow of every biography of everybody in it. It's only telling us certain selected things. My guess is it's to show that God's people make use of what they have and do the best they can while they pray to God and God causes it to work. This wouldn't be a place to preach on this point, I guess, but you know the old story about the guy who falls off a cliff and he's hanging on a branch and he's about to drop and he asks God, to save him and man comes and throws a rope over the cliff and 
says, grab hold of this rope, I'll pull you up. And he says, no, I've asked God to save me. A helicopter comes by and they drop a ladder down and he refuses to go on the ladder. He says, no, I asked God to save me. Finally, he lets go because he's too tired. He drops and falls and he goes before God and says, why didn't you save me? And God said, well, I sent you a guy with a rope. I sent you a helicopter. The same kind of thing is here. We don't ask God to bless us and then do nothing but sit around and wait for it. But Jacob does something and God blesses his doing it even though what he does wouldn't work. And maybe that's true of us too. Sometimes we are seeking to obey God and we do things that shouldn't work and yet God causes them to work. And I think sometimes we do stuff that should work and God causes it not to work. So maybe that's what we should take away from this. At any rate, quickly, we can get done with this. The next method that Jacob uses, and here verse 40 is difficult to translate, but it's best translated this way, seems to mean this. The sheep Jacob set apart, and he faced those among the flock toward the straight and dark ones among Laban's flock. What does that mean? There are different ways to try to understand this, but none of them make sense except this. He didn't do the rods and water thing with the sheep. He did that with the goats, exposing the black goats to white things so that they would have white spots on them. He takes the white sheep and he causes them to look at that flock of black goats while they mate. And the result is you get some dark sheep. And he says he faces them toward the dark goats and the streaked goats. And that's why this word streaked is, again, one of these words that never shows up again. But among the possibilities, they think, well, a streaked goat is a goat that's black but has white on its feet. So Jacob wants black sheep, dark sheep. So he has the sheep look at these dark goats while they mate, and the result is, ta-da, dark sheep. So that seems to be what it means, that he faced among the flock toward each dark one. And he made special herds for himself. He didn't make them for Laban's flock. Well, he didn't do these kinds of things for Laban's flock. And then that's really explained in what follows. The third method was to use the strongest ones to breed his own flocks. When it came to pass, whenever the robust flock animals were in heat, Jacob would put the rods inside of the flock animals in the gutters to make them be in heat next to the rods, but when the flock animals were feeble, he wouldn't put them there. And so it came to pass that feeble ones became Laban's and the robust ones Jacob's. Well, now this actually works scientifically. The more robust animals have got more hybrid vigor and therefore possess more genes for striped and streaked and speckled and plaid and polka dot and all the rest. The stronger black goats and when we're starting out with a whole bunch of pure black goats, but the stronger ones are more likely to have the genes for these other configurations of fur. And so that actually, in terms of modern science, this part of it works. Of course, what Jacob was thinking of is, my sheep will be stronger because he breeds the strong ones in front of the rods and the feeble ones he doesn't. But it would work out the same way. The robust ones are going to produce a higher percentage of speckled and spotted and streaked goats 
than the weak ones because of hybrid vigor or whatever you want to call it. And the commentators discuss genotypes and phenotypes and all that. And I didn't bring all that in. I think this is common sense. And whether he understood it that way or not, we can. In verse 31, chapter 31:43, we read that God caused this to happen. He burst forth with wealth. There's that burst forth again. Exceedingly, yes, exceedingly is emphasized. There's lots of them. And again, we have to think back, think forward, think back in our own studies, but think forward to the multiplication of the people in Egypt later on. The people are multiplying all over the place. Exodus 1, verse 7. The sons of Israel bore fruit. They swarmed. They became many. They grew mighty in number. Exceedingly, yes, exceedingly, and the land was filled with them. Exceedingly, yes, exceedingly. Here, Jacob's flock is bursting forth. And we looked a while back at how the flock represents the people. So now, at the end of this little section, Laban's sons show that they have short memories. And Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons. We're getting down to six years here. It only takes six years for this to happen. It must have happened pretty fast. If you've only got six years, you're not gradually getting a few more stripes and speckled each year. Speckled and spotted. You must have had a whole lot of speckled and spotted the first year, and then a whole lot more the next year. So in a phenomenal and unexpected way, this whole flock of black and white goats and sheep is turning into this flock of other things. And Laban doesn't have many over here, and Jacob's got a lot, and he's selling them. They're his. And he's buying maidservants and manservants, or hiring them, and he's buying camels and donkeys. Camels cost a fortune in the ancient world. And he's building up a big estate all in six years. And it's happening so fast that the family's panicked out. And they say, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has made all this glory. Well, they seem to have forgotten it just a little bit earlier. Laban himself has said, I didn't have much before you came, and Yahweh has blessed me. So it really wasn't their father's, it was Yahweh's. Jacob hasn't taken it away. Jacob is fulfilling out the deal. He isn't cheating. He was left in charge, and he's doing what makes sense to him to do. And it's Yahweh who causes it to happen. Thus, what Jacob took away from Laban was what Yahweh had given Laban through Jacob. Once again, the wicked accuse the righteous when the wicked are in fact sinners. That's the theme throughout Genesis. Pharaoh comes to Abraham and says, I took your wife into my harem, and it's your fault. Abimelech says, one of the women might have raped your wife, and it would have been your fault. Esau says, it's all your fault, Jacob, that I gave away my birthright. And so here Laban's sons say, well, this is all Jacob's fault. Well, no, not at all. Everything they have came from Yahweh, and they've forgotten it. Also, we want to notice that in this translation it says weighty wealth. That word weighty means heavy, and the word heavy is kavod and means glory. Glory is heavy. And that's literally what it says. He has become glorious, and he's become more glorious than Laban. And so now... They don't like that, and they want to do something about it. And Jacob decides to head out of town before they have a chance to do so. And so the next section starts that Jacob saw Laban's face, 
Behold, he was no longer with him as yesterday and the day before. And Yahweh says, get out of Dodge. And then he calls his wives and talks to them and he talks to them in terms of those two things. So that's where we'll be next week. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.